Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15, and we'll read through verse 46. And I always find it interesting, as we've been walking through the book of Matthew, that I haven't had to work very hard to make the Bible relevant. (laughs) All you have to do, like Spurgeon said, is open the Bible, let it out, and it's relevant. (laughs) And that's very true of every passage that we've gone over. In fact, so many times it has seemed like that particular passage that we were on that week, just walking through the book of Matthew like we've done for some time now. But just walking through the book of Matthew, we come to a passage that is particularly relevant for a season of our church life. And that's exactly what we come to today is this particular passage, a little bit longer passage than we have been taking, verses 15 through verse 46, 15 through the end of the chapter. But what we see here in this passage, a a discussion of three topics that I think are extraordinarily relevant for what we have walked through in this past year. Jesus is tested in the issues of politics. Jesus is tested in the issue of religion. And Jesus is tested in the issue of love. So politics, religion, and love. All of these three realities in this particular passage, in this particular text. Would you read with me in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 46. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, come up to him and question him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died having no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also and to the third and so on to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, whose wife will she be of all the seven? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them, You are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which command is in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. He asked them, How then it is that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all, and from that day no one dared to question him any more. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word speaks to our hearts and speaks to our lives, and Lord, we don't have to work hard to make it relevant today. Your word is relevant to our lives. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship where we have gathered together to here in this room and online and in latter services to worship the holy name of Jesus, to lift up our God, to remind each other of the sovereign grace of our God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that we are here at this particular juncture in time where we are experiencing, Lord, the lifting of restrictions, the changing of situations. And Lord, we are grateful for these things. And Lord, I pray that as we move forward from this place, Lord, I pray that you would help us to move forward in love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to move forward in a way where we as the body of Christ demonstrates to the world what it means to love one another and to love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would speak to us by your word. And Lord, from this passage, Lord, I pray that the gospel would be clear. The gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave. And Lord, help us to be bold about proclaiming that good news to a world that at this particular moment in time, just like every moment in time, but at this juncture truly needs to hear good news. And so, Lord, help us to teach and preach the good news through our lives and our words. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Jesus is facing three tests from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, and from the Herodians. These three tests are described in various different ways. They are plotting to trap him. They are questioning him. They have malicious intent. It's important to understand Jesus's response to their questions in terms of the intent of their questions in the first place. They don't intend good for Jesus. They want to discredit Jesus. They want to trap Jesus in these particular subjects. What were the subjects in which they wanted to trap Jesus? They wanted to trap Jesus in the subjects of politics and religion. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Does that sound familiar or relevant to anything that we might have experienced in the past year? (laughs) Certainly in the last year, there have been numerous traps set all around us, 
seeking to divide us as believers, as a church, as Christians, in these particular topics, in the topics of politics, political controversy, and in the, in the realm of religion, theological questions as well. And Jesus responds to them, and it's very interesting that in the context of the questioning, in the context of the testing, in the context of these very controversial issues, that's where we find the very passage where Jesus then comes along and says, in response to a question of testing, the greatest commandments are these, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Within the context of some of the most controversial and explosive issues, that's where Jesus presses most of these two greatest commandments. Love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets can be encapsulated in these two commandments, in these two realities. And then Jesus brings it home in the end and says to us, in the context of a controversial world where you are seeking to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and walk in in wisdom, you're going to need the lordship of Christ. And so in the end of this whole section, he brings in the lordship of Jesus and shows us that it is impossible to walk in this controversial world with wisdom on your own. It's impossible for you to love God with everything that you've got and love your neighbor with everything that you've got on your own. You're going to need active in your heart and your soul the lordship of Jesus in order to have this wisdom that's outside of yourself and in order to have this agape love that is outside of your own ability to manufacture or imagine. And so this passage points us first and foremost, while there's much we can say about it and unpacking it, it points us first and foremost to our continuing need of Jesus when we deal with these controversial questions of our time and our day. The key idea that I want you to get across, I want to get across to you in this passage today is this walk with wisdom in dealing and responding to political and theological controversy by focusing on loving God, loving neighbor, and living under the lordship of Christ. Let me say it again. Walk in wisdom, responding to political and theological controversy. How? By focusing on loving God, loving neighbor, and living under the lordship of Christ. Number one is this. Walk in wisdom by responding to political controversy. Walk in wisdom by responding to political controversy. How do you respond to political controversy? You respond to political controversy in wisdom. Jesus demonstrates how to do that in this particular passage. In verses 15 through verse 22, we have one of the more well-known sentences that Jesus ever said. Jesus said this phrase, given to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and given to God the things which are God's. And we know that verse has been quoted many times in the past year. But what is the context of that verse? The context of that verse is that the Pharisees were seeking to test Jesus. Jesus even uses the phrase that they have a malicious intent in order to ask this particular question. They don't have Jesus' best interests in mind. In fact, they are seeking to discredit Jesus. And the incredible thing that's happening in this particular passage is that the Pharisees send their own disciples and they join forces with the Herodians in order to test Jesus. 
That is stunning in and of itself because just about any other time in that particular era of Jewish life, the Herodians and the Pharisees didn't get along. But one of the things that they could get along about was they didn't like Jesus. It's interesting that people who might be politically separated on many other issues can so oftentimes come together when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to fighting against what Christ, who Christ is and the gospel that he came to bring. Verse 15 says this question was the culmination of their plan to entrap Jesus in his words and what he said. We have the Pharisees who are the religious zealots of that particular day. They feel like the people's hearts are turning away from their teaching, from their own leadership and religious life within the Jewish community, that they're turning their hearts over towards Jesus and they're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of the hearts of people and so they want to discredit Jesus. They want to retain their religious authority. They want to retain their hold, their grip on the people's hearts and minds. They're joining forces there with the Herodians, which is very interesting because they're in Jerusalem at this particular time, and the Herodians actually don't have any jurisdiction in Judea at all. They don't have any jurisdiction at all in Jerusalem. They came from Galilee over to Jerusalem outside of their jurisdiction for this particular purpose. They want to credit, discredit Jesus. And these Herodians are disciples or followers of Herod. They were more of a political party than they are a religious party. They're interested in the political power that had been given to Herod over a particular region. And by their friendship with Herod, they also got the benefits of having people in the right places. <clears throat> Not so different from the world ever since then, is, has it been? Or is it? And so we see that here in this passage that the political, those in political power and those in religious power coming together to ask Jesus this particular political question, this particular test. Now what is the test that they're going to give Jesus? They're going to ask Jesus a question about a very controversial political topic. Does that sound familiar? Now what is that particular topic that they are going to ask Jesus about? They're going to ask Jesus about taxes. Certainly not political or controversial anymore, is it? <laughs> In fact, it's interesting that we would have this sermon today because didn't we just have yesterday was the new tax date for 2021. So if you haven't filed yet, you're a day late. You better get it in tomorrow or hopefully you have your extension already filed. But here we have in this passage that they are joining forces to ask Jesus a question about taxes. And they approach Jesus and they say to Jesus, notice what they call Jesus in verse 16. They call Jesus teacher. Very important phrase there, very important opening title there. Because in the book of Matthew, anybody who addresses Jesus first and foremost as teacher or good teacher or anything like that, anybody who comes to Jesus and calls him teacher, at that moment you can automatically say, this is somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Everybody in Matthew who addresses Jesus as good teacher or teacher is somebody who is not believing in Jesus. Everybody in this passage addresses him in that way. And so here in this passage, they say, teacher, we know that you teach truth, truthfully. You teach truthfully the way of God. You don't need anybody to teach you, and you don't care about what anybody says. They're buttering him up at this moment. 
They're buttering him up and trying to get him to be prideful rather than have this humility about him. They're trying to get him to become prideful so that his guard is down when they bring in the trap, when they bring in the question. But it's not going to work with Jesus. Because Jesus is God become man. Jesus, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who is the maker of the universe, the one who knows where the storehouses of snow are, the one who is the one whom we sang about earlier in the service as indescribable, uncontainable, awestruck, we fall at your knees as we humbly proclaim, this is the one whom they are asking this particular question of. He is the ruler of nations, ruler of all. He doesn't care about what man thinks about him because it doesn't matter. He is Lord of lords. King of kings over all things. He is God. And he's not going to fall into this trap of pride, this trap, this temptation to value what other people say about him more than what God says about him, what his father says about him. Then comes the bait. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not incredibly controversial question in that particular day within jesus's lifetime thousands had been slaughtered over this issue over this particular question there had been a rebellion in jesus's lifetime against rome over this issue firestorm of an issue that many people had been killed over What was so controversial about it? Well, pious Jews objected to the coin itself. They objected to the taxes, yes. How could this tyrannical regime known as the Romans, who spread this Pax Romana over all of our society, which was really peace at the end of a sword, how should we submit to their tyrannical regime when they have this coin indeed that if you look at the coin, it contains an idolatrous graven image on the front and on the back? How could we as Jews ever even use this particular coin? Because on the front of the picture it had, or on the front of the coin, it had the picture of Caesar. And under the picture of Caesar, I won't read the Latin to you, but it said this, son of the divine Augustus. It said, Caesar is God. On the back of the coin, it had another picture of Caesar, and it said, highest priest. The coin itself said, Caesar is priest. Caesar is king. It was an idolatrous, graven image, violation of the commandments. Pious Jews were so offended by the coin that Rome even made a special law that there in Jerusalem that the Jews could actually have their own coins in order to pay the temple tax, in order to support the temple in that particular day. And so they were extremely offended by this. Further goes, it goes even further than that. The Jews hated the poll tax that they had to use that coin to pay for that had been implemented by Rome in the year 86. So much so that in Jesus' lifetime, there was a guy named Zadok who had led a revolt against, he was a zealot who led a revolt against Rome. And as a result of that particular revolt, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews that were slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem, in the hillside surrounding Jerusalem, over the issue of taxes. That's one side. 
On the other side of the issue, there's the trap. If you say, yes, pay the taxes, you're going to offend every Jew out there who says, why in the world would you ever use this idolatrous coin to pay taxes to a regime that should never have control over this place in the first place? Over Jerusalem in the first place. If you say, no, don't pay taxes, guess who is going to come towards you? The Romans are going to be coming for you because they're going to see you as another Zadok and as another Zealot, and they're going to crush the rebellion. At this point, you should put on the screen, I don't have it, but you should put a, up on the screen a picture of General Akbar from Star Wars, and he should say, it's a trap! <laughs> have you ever been in a situation that it feels like however you answer, people are going to be mad at you. Ever been there in your life? Ever been there recently? How do you respond? Many of you have been there in your families because in this last year you have had situations in your lives where your own families have been divided over various different issues. Maybe you see that in your, with your friends or in your workplace or in the culture or in the church. And in those types of situations, I can see Satan just doing this the entire time. Just stirring the pot, stirring the pot, stirring the pot, stirring it up. Division in families, division in homes, division in marriages, dividing children from their parents, dividing churches over and over and over again. Just doing this. What does it take to respond to these types of controversial issues? What it takes to respond to these kind of controversial issues is we need the wisdom of Jesus. What we see demonstrated here first and foremost is not first and foremost in my heart. Certainly we will talk here in a moment about what Jesus said. But in even stepping back to a higher level view of this particular passage, what we need in these moments when we have to respond to controversial issues in our society is we need the wisdom of Jesus. We need the wisdom of our Christ working in our lives because the issue may not be taxes in our day. The issue may be a hundred different other things. And who knows what the next issues might be that come up in our lives. But this calls us to a desperate cry for the wisdom of Jesus in our day to know how to best respond to these situations. How does Jesus respond to this situation? It's incredible. Jesus shows incredible wisdom right on the moment. Jesus asks for a coin, and the Pharisees have one. Jesus says, give me a coin. And what's incredible is the very ones who believe that that coin was an idolatrous image have one in the temple. <laughs> and as soon as they reach in their pocket and produce one, Jesus has them. <laughs> How dare they bring the idolatrous coin in the temple? <laughs> It's just hilarious. And what's Jesus' first words there? Jesus' first words is, you hypocrites. You're here questioning me about this coin that you believe is a graven image, and I imagine that you guys, as soon as I kicked over the tables in the temple a couple of days ago, all of you all were on your hands and feet scrounging to pick them up and put them in your pockets. That's the image of what's going on here because it's in the same section of Matthew. 
And so here are the ones who were in love with money. Somewhere else in the gospel it says the Pharisees who were in love with money are trying to question Jesus about money. Jesus says, let me see one of the coins. They didn't say, oh, we don't have one because we don't believe in that kind of thing. They had one in their pocket. They They bring out one to Jesus. Jesus says, you hypocrites. And Jesus responds, give the things to Caesar that are Caesar's and give the things to God that are God's. Pay the tax. But there is a greater debt that you have. Pay the tax. You're concerned about your debt to Caesar. You better be concerned about your debt to God. You're concerned about your debt to the one who produced this coin. You better be more concerned about your debt to the one who made the gold that went into the coin in the first place. And isn't that, should that not be our concern in our day as well? Our concern, yes, should be engaged politically. I'll talk about that here in a moment. But our concern even over and above our responsibilities to a political figure and to political establishment must be our ultimate responsibility, our deeper debt, our deeper issue in our lives is our responsibility first and foremost, as Jesus will say here in a moment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Over and above all other allegiances in our lives. Jesus, indeed, in this passage, does say that we are to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar. It takes wisdom to apply it because he doesn't unpack it here in this particular time, unpacked a little bit in the rest of the New Testament. But in each particular situation, in each particular era, it is different in how the church has sought to apply it. Think about how the church applied it in Jesus' day versus Nero's day versus Constantine's day versus in the Middle Ages versus in Great Britain versus in the United States versus in Iran today. Verses in China today. Verses in North Korea today. How do Christians apply it in different eras? How do we apply it in our day? What does it look like in our day to give to Caesar that which is Caesar? The overarching principle here is that believers seek to live under and support a government that wields the sword of the law in such a way that righteousness is protected and evil is restrained. That is the hope of the Christian is that the governing authorities which God has put in place will use the sword to restrain evil and promote righteousness, would use the power that they have in that way. When they don't, we pray, and in our society, we can work towards a government to pray towards and vote towards and to make phone calls towards a government that would use the sword rightly against evildoers and promoting righteousness, restraining evil and protecting righteousness. In our Republican democracy, our responsibility is to vote. As believers, we live in a nation that is unlike the nation that was under Nero in the fact that we have the privilege and responsibility to vote as under a nation that is of the people, for the people, and by the people. And we as Christians ought to vote. And if we don't, we are shirking our responsibility before God. 
Not only is it our responsibility to devote, but in this situation that we are in, in this nation and many other nations that I've mentioned already that they don't have this blessing to be able to do, we want to make our voice known. We will not have... We will not be thrown in jail for raising our voices against Chairman Xi or against the president or against or for our representatives. We have that right and responsibility to be able to stand up and let our voices be heard. And so as many times as I have done in the last year, you should do as well. Speak up. Let your representative know what your thought is on particular situations. Let your voice be heard. Not only should we let our voice be heard, but we should encourage believers to serve in public office. One of the challenges that we have in our day is sometimes we face races on the ballots where we kind of have to hold our nose and pick somebody or just write somebody in because nobody righteous is running. And so we pray and support for and support those who are believers to run for office, and especially all, on all levels, but especially starting in the local level, where we can have first and foremost the greatest impact immediately. And so we encourage that. We support that. And finally, we also pray for our government as well. How many times in the last year have you prayed for our leaders? How many times in the past few months have you prayed for President Biden? How many of the times in the past few months have you prayed for our Congress? How many times have you prayed for our senators? How many times have you prayed for our representatives at all different levels? We ought to be praying for every single one of these people at their different levels that God's will would be done. We ought to pray for them. We seek to obey the governing authorities, except in those instances where the governing authorities call us to violate a clear command of God. And then prayerfully, with much wisdom and grace as possible, and patience even as possible, that there comes a time when the government says to go this way and God says to go this way. And when that happens, we go with the Lord. We go with God. Now, this is where the controversy of the last year has come into play. The controversy of the last year has been where it takes wisdom and discernment to know when the government is overstepping its bounds concerning faith. So last year in March we had the government say, for a season you shouldn't meet. And just about every church out there said, yes, we don't know about this virus. We don't know what's going on in this situation. And so just about every church out there for a season stopped meeting. Now, many met online, and many met in other ways, in smaller groups. But many churches for a season, even if it was for a period of weeks, didn't meet. Now, where do Christians, good Christians disagree? Where good Christians disagree is that, or well, well, let's go where Christians agree. Christians all agree on this reality. We ought to meet. Amen? (laughs) We ought to be meeting. It is a good thing to be meeting. And so as soon as possible, we met outside. As soon as possible, we came back inside. As soon as possible, we kept all of these things going. It's important for Christians to meet. Now, where did good Christians disagree? Good Christians disagreed on the application of giving to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and giving to God the things that are God. Good Christians did not disagree on 
the issue of if we should meet. Good Christians disagreed on the application of how quickly we should regather. All Christians agreed with the same issue that we, well, all Christians should have agreed with the same issue that we should gather together. And that's important and indispensable for growth in the Christian life. But where Christians disagreed was on the pacing of things, on the pacing of how quickly things should get back to normal, on th- the pacing of how quickly things should change, on qu- how quickly things should be pushed back on. And so in the past year, when Caesar said, thou shalt not sing, we said, oh no, <laughs> we shall sing. <laughs> we shall worship the Lord our God in song as we gather together. And with patience, we waited on certain issues, more patience than was called for by some, less patience than by others. But you know what? In this same passage, how do we respond in those situations where we disagree on, not on the principle, but on the timing? How do we respond? I think we find the answer in this passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seek to love one another as we walk through these issues and as we seek to find wisdom from on high as we seek to walk forward together in love, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Don't divide on issues of timing. Be careful of these things. How do we respond to these issues? We pray for wisdom. We engage politically. But over all of these realities, we focus our hearts and minds on loving God and loving one another, the greatest commandments. Number two, walk with wisdom. We need wisdom when dealing with political issues. Number two, walk with wisdom in responding to theological controversy. Notice we don't not respond to these things. We respond to these things. But in order to respond to these things well, we need the wisdom of God. Number two, walk with wisdom in responding to theological controversy. Next passage, the Sadducees come to Jesus with the theological controversy. These are the individuals in that particular day are secularists and materialists. They only believe the first five books of the Bible, and since the first five books, they can't find the reference there that refers to angels or the resurrection or many other things. And so they say there are no angels, there, are, there is no resurrection. Eat, sleep, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no life after death. That's why the Sadducees, so was said when I was in Sunday school as a child, the Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, waka, waka. (laughs) They don't believe in the resurrection. They come to Jesus with another test in this particular moment. They question Jesus on what's called leveret marriage. And so they say, these people who don't believe in the resurrection ask Jesus a question about resurrection. Interestingly enough, they're asking Jesus ingenuinely about a theological controversy they don't even believe in. And so they say to Jesus, there's a lady, she has a husband, he dies, there's seven brothers, they all marry her in obedience to the law of Moses, all of them die, she dies, in the resurrection, whose wife, who's going to be married? Are they all going to be married? Is it going to be brother number four? Does she get to pick? Who is it going to be? Jesus, who's it going to be? How does Jesus respond to this theological controversy? Jesus responds to this theological controversy by saying, there are two problems in this situation. You don't know Scripture, and you don't know the power of God. Two issues. You don't know the Scripture. You don't know the power of God. Let's handle them in reverse order. You don't know the power of God. First of all, there is a resurrection. And Jesus could have looked at the book of Daniel, the very last 
verse in the book of Daniel about shining like stars in the universe. He could have looked at David, where David's child died, and he says, he's not coming to me, but I'm going to him. He exists, and I'm going to him. He could look at many other places, but Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus, anticipating his own resurrection, even says there is a resurrection. And when there is the resurrection, people are going to be like the angels. You forget that one of the reasons for marriage is procreation. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a need for that anymore. Now, what will the marriage, what will our relationships look like in the new heavens and the new earth? The Bible doesn't say. But the Bible does say it's going to be so much better and so much more unified and so much more together than anything we have in this world. We don't know exactly what it is. That's why when we do wedding ceremonies, we say in part of our vows, till death do us part. In the resurrection, there's not marriage or giving in marriage, but you are you and your husband, and your wife are them. And you will relate to one another and to other believers in ways that are deeper and more satisfying and more glorious than anything we could ever even imagine. What does that look like? We don't know. But what we know is that it is full of glory forever and ever and ever. So Jesus says, you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. This is a mystery to us. We simply have to trust that the resurrection is going to be glorious. And then he points to the scripture and he says, you don't even know the law. If you look at the law, you can find the answer to your own question. God is the God. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not past tense, but present. They are alive in heaven. One day they will be resurrected. And so Isaac has his identity in heaven. Abraham has his identity in heaven. Christine Huggins, whom we had her funeral yesterday, I said in the service that we don't refer to her in the past tense. We refer to her in the present tense because she is very much alive. She is very much with Jesus in glory. And when the trumpet call of God sounds, the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible and to live forever. She is just and we praise the Lord for that truth and that reality. Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection where you will be the sanctified, perfected you. Jesus said, you know, you don't know the power of God, that he will resurrect. You don't know the scriptures that in the law itself, it says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does this teach us about how we should address theological controversy in our day? of which there are many that we are dealing with that we have dealt with in the last year and many that we don't even know what they will be issues to come. I think in the introduction to a theology for the church, Albert Moeller gives a really good understanding of how to categorize theological issues and to understand how we should treat different theological issues. He calls it theological triage. And he says there are first order issues, there are second order issues, and there are third order issues. What are first order issues? First order theological issues are those issues that you must believe in order to be a Christian. You must believe these in order to be a Christian. If you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. They separate believer from unbeliever. What are some of the issues there? I won't give you an exhaustive list of things that are in this, but you must believe in the virgin birth. You must believe in the deity of Christ. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must believe in the Trinity. You must believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
You must believe in salvation in Christ alone, the exclusivity of the gospel. We could go on and on on these issues, but these are gospel-centric issues that if you mess those up or don't believe in them, that is what separates Christian from non-Christian. We believe in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture that if there's errors in this, the whole thing falls apart. And there's no error in this word. You must believe these things in order to be a Christian. So first order issues separate Christian from non-Christian. Second order theological issues are those issues which are very important to us that are important enough for us to separate into different denominations, into different churches, but we're still Christians. We're still believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and still going to heaven. R.C. Sproul is one of my heroes in the faith. I love his writings. I don't agree with everything that he said. One of the things that I disagree strongly about with what he said was he is a Presbyterian. He believes in baptizing infants. I'm a Baptist, and I don't believe that. I believe the Bible teaches something very different, that you baptize those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul is dead. Where is R.C. Sproul now? Well, based upon his testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ, while I strongly disagree with him on that issue, I believe he's in heaven because he is a faithful Christian. Issues in the second order would be things like baptism, church government. There's other churches that believe in a top-down church government. We don't have a denomination that has authority over our local church. We are an independent local church that chooses to cooperate with a particular group for groups for the sake of missions. And so we have a different ecclesiology. We have a different teaching about church. Third order issues are issues that we can exist in the same church and disagree about. We can be in the same congregation and discuss vigorously, but still be members of the same church and go tell somebody about Jesus. What are those kinds of issues? Well, one of those issues would be, are you pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial, or are you pan-millennial? It'll pan out in the end, right? <laughs> and so... What issue? What are you? We have people in our church that are all of those. I don't know any post-millennialists, but come and see me after church. <laughs> but in our church, in our congregation, we have all of those things. Views on the end times. All believe in heaven and hell. All those views believe in the reality of heaven, eternal heaven, eternal hell, or you should believe in those realities. But disagree on the particular order of things. We can be in the same church and get along, vigorously debate those things, but love one another and go tell somebody about Jesus. And so when it comes to theological controversy, what does it take? It takes wisdom. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Number three is this. How do we walk through these issues? Number three, we focus on the great commandments of loving God and loving neighbor. We don't have much time to dive into this well, but we will summarize in that Jesus was asked again a question to test him. One of the controversial issues of his time, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus responds in the context of being tested about political things and about religious things, theological things. Jesus comes in and says this, above all of these realities, our heart is this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is worship. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is fellowship together. Those cover a multitude of sins. And I think love gives us the wisdom that it takes to walk forward as a congregation 
forward to bringing the gospel to this nation and this world. That's where we want to be as a church, is loving God with everything that we've got and loving each other, loving our neighbor as ourself, walking out the implications of those realities. Number four is this. We surrender to the empowering lordship of Jesus. This chapter ends with Jesus turning the tables and him asking a question. He says to the Pharisees who are gathered there questioning him, what about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said, David's. They rightly reply, he will be David's son. Then he says, look at Psalm chapter 110 and verse 1. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. So David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Who is the one who he said, my Lord about, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How can David's son be his Lord? Whoa. The Pharisees were like, we don't know. They weren't able to answer him. What Jesus was pointing to was this very central reality that the one who is David's son, who is also Lord, who is God, was standing right in front of them. And that was the central issue that they would not acknowledge, the lordship of Christ over all things over all of the political controversy, over all of the theological controversy, and the only one that can give you the wisdom to respond to those things, and the only one that can give you the love to respond to these issues as well. As we finish today, I want to ask you the question, where do politicians in the Bible, where does politics come together with religion against Jesus again? And where is Jesus going to demonstrate in high definition what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Where are we going to see that in high definition? Where are we going to see the Lordship of Christ demonstrated over all as he puts all enemies, verse 44, under his feet? Where do we see love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, that vertical relationship? Love your neighbor as yourself. We will see the greatest demonstration of love for God and love for neighbor when Jesus hung on that cross, put there by the politicians of Rome, put there by the religious figures of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, put there by the will of God as he died on the cross for all those who lack wisdom, for all those who don't love God with everything that they've got, for all those who don't love their neighbor as themselves, for all those who desperately need the lordship of Jesus active and working in their lives. Jesus is the only way and the only answer for us to walk in wisdom and in love in controversial days where our unity will be tested, but we can come out like gold if we walk together hand in hand under the lordship and the authority of our Christ. That is how we walk together in the future as a church. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to somehow make your word relevant to our lives, but Lord, your word indeed is relevant to our lives. 
And Lord, I pray that in the days ahead that we know that we will face in our culture and in our world the controversies as they have done for 2,000 years, I think controversies won't quit coming. And the things that are struggles won't quit happening. And so, Lord, I pray in the midst of these traps that are all around us that Satan loves to use to try to stir up dissension and division within the church, Lord, I pray that you would help us to first and foremost respond to those under the Lordship of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond to those with wisdom, the wisdom of the Spirit that we ask for in these times. And Lord, you would help us to respond in love for one another and love for our God and for our Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together today. And Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.